This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins. mental workers and welcome back to the podcast. Today we've got a really cool episode for you. We have got emotional labor part two. You might remember at the start of the season we had an episode with James Clark and it was all about emotional labor. I thought it was a pretty important topic to cover because emotional labor is really associated with the degree which psychologists burn out and our well-being. So James was very gracious to come on and unpack his research. And today we've got another researcher in the area to join us alongside with James to go into more of the intricacies with emotional labor. I'll introduce them both now. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Bronwyn. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to to following on from James's awesome podcast last time. Yeah. And hello, James. Hello again, Bronwyn and Anthony. Nice to be back. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you back. And now that you are a returning guest, you are now officially a friend of the podcast. I didn't tell you that beforehand, but now you are. So just FYI. That's great. Do I get a badge or something like that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Badges possibly in the future. You just get the uh, honorary cool. title for now. Nice. Fantastic. So you might remember James Clark is a clinical psychologist and a PhD candidate at Curtin University. Anthony Joffe is a psychologist and PhD candidate at Macquarie University. Let's start off in the action. And I'm interested to hear from Anthony. How did you get into this area of emotional labor in psychologists? Bit of a niche area. I think that my research and my interest in this topic came out of my work prior to being a psychologist. So I used to work for a crisis line and working at a crisis line, you're actually chopping and changing between lots of different emotions, lots of different stories, lots of different narratives, um, roughly every 25 to 30 minutes. And so you might be on the call with one person experiencing lots of really unpleasant emotion. Maybe someone's really angry or frustrated and you need to manage that, then shift to the next call where someone might be experiencing grief or loss. So juggling that kind of emotion, I noticed was taking a bit of a toll on me and I really wanted to understand a little bit more how that relates to psychologists who do this mostly full-time as their careers. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you're noticing in yourself these massive emotional shifts from one topic to the next. And I'm assuming you didn't get like a 20-minute break to process in between each of those calls. Look, the, the crisis lines are great in that you can take breaks. Oh, cool. At the same time, though, when you do see the numbers ticking of how many people are in line, you start to almost feel compelled to take the next call. So certainly room for self-care and self-compassion. I know you and James spoke about that on the last episode, but those emotions still linger and certainly more than they might over a a quick break. So even though you can take that break for self-care, there also seems to be this element of psychologists who really want to help people and there might be some guilt or feeling a sense of responsibility to keep on going. Certainly the responsibility, absolutely. Wow. And so that prompted you to go and unpack this line of research even more? Yeah. So obviously a crisis line is pretty different to being a psychologist in the sense that you have follow-up and the the appointments go for a lot longer. But I did really wonder if this is what's happening at a crisis line and if this is the impact it's having on me working at a crisis line, how is this going to look over the course of a career? And so in consultation with my supervisor, we discussed this, this topic of emotional labor and Yeah, we just thought it'd be really novel to apply to psychologists. And at the time, you know, it was before James's research was published, there was really nothing, nothing out there. That's what I noticed when I was looking at this area, that it is really unique. And I think both of you mentioned that in your research articles, that there's a real gap in the research literature applying it to psychologists. I think it's been looked at mostly in like nurses, doctors. Is that right? That's right. We're in the process of conducting a systematic review at the moment, looking across all the kind of therapeutic and helping professions. And we're finding that it is mostly in terms of those therapeutic contexts, psychiatric nurses and the occasional study on a school psychologist, but very little about psychology in practice um, and the more clinical realm. It's thought that came into my head, but why is that? Why don't we care? Like, I don't know if it's that we don't care about psychologists, but why why hasn't there been research in this area? I don't get it. I don't know if whether we feel like we have been talking about it already in terms of the, the concept of, of countertransference, maybe. 
But I think historically, and this is just speculation, I should say, but I think that, you know, we focus a lot more on the other. Um, and I think that in psychology in general, you know, we spoke about how, I mean, we, we certainly do have higher rates of unrelenting standards and self-sacrificing kind of <clears throat> patterns of behavior. And I wonder if that also just feeds into the sorts of topics that we might be interested in as well. We talked about this last time. We've got a lot of unrelenting standards and self-sacrificing schemas in psychologists. So we expect really highly of ourselves to meet sometimes unrealistic standards. And we also find ourselves bending over backwards, sometimes at the expense of our own well-being, to give to our clients. And maybe that influences the kinds of research topics we're interested in. Yeah, that, that, that's certainly what I think. Again, that's just speculation. I think it's good that, speculation. That's, that's, my, that's my sense of it. I don't know what you think, Anthony. Oh, I totally agree. And, you know, I mentioned that systematic review before. And one of the things that we noticed is we actually got a huge volume of papers, but it was all about therapists helping clients with their emotion regulation to prevent adverse well-being or to improve well-being. So we know that it's important. But as you said, there's kind of this anomaly where it's not being studied the other way. It's really bizarre because when you think about it, psychologists, like we are the tool. That's how I think about ourselves. Like if I'm a mechanic and this is going to show my ignorance of mechanics, but mechanics use a spanner is my understanding and that's their tool. And as psychologists, we are the tool that we use. And it's bizarre that we wouldn't check in on ourselves and make sure that we're doing okay and how we regulate our own emotions. Absolutely. And I think some of the other studies as well that I've looked at where psychologists have been part of the sample, uh, there's there's no distinction between the other professions and psychologists. And I think you, if you really look at the the context of the relationship between service provider and service recipient, uh, psychology and the relationship there is just so incredibly different than, say, um, psychiatric nurses or doctors or or even school psychologists as well. Yeah, it's a bit bizarre because we know that the therapeutic relationship has such an impact on client outcome. Like it just blows my mind. It makes me really grateful for you both, Anthony and James, that you're doing research in this area. That's very nice to hear. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on until how you met each other. So... Anthony is starting off his journey looking into emotional labour. He's walking along his lone path in New South Wales. And how do you come into contact with James, who's walking his lone path in Perth? Absolutely. Um, and it's a question I ask myself quite often because it was, it was really just about luck coming across James and his research. So as most early career psychologists do, joined a few Facebook groups, a few interest groups, things like that. and. I came across an advert for James's one of James's studies where he was recruiting psychologists. And I thought, great, I thought I had this really novel area of research. There's someone else out there. This must be a really booming field that I've just neglected to come across. And I reached out to James, we ended up having a Zoom. And I think we both realized we're on the same page where we're both very passionate about this topic. There's no one else doing it. Let's kind of brainstorm ideas and talk together and I think over the course of my PhD, I've been in contact with James a fair bit. Um, I've been very fortunate that James has been studying the topic a bit longer than I have. And so he's been a great person to kind of bounce ideas off, get inspiration from and and work with in trying to provide some really important answers to to this research question. That's really funny that you say that and that you had a positive reaction to seeing James. I remember when I was doing my PhD and anytime I saw somebody having a similar topic to myself, I actually felt really scared because I was like, oh crap, they're doing exactly the same thing as me. What's my unique angle? How am I going to show a unique contribution to the literature? Um, So you didn't have that? That's my own insecurity? Oh, I should clarify. That was my first response. Okay, cool. (laughs) And, And it was only after I you know, reached out to my supervisor and reached out to James and James responded so positively, linking me to some really amazing papers and some resources. And and I've said this to James in the past, but it's actually really changed my view on research and that idea that, you know, we don't need to claim this topic as our own. If it's something that's of importance, let's actually work together to try and get the message out there. And so there's, you know, big thank you to James and that for not 
not gatekeeping the emotional labor in psychologist topic. <laughs> nice work. This shows good collaboration. I'm really pleased you to it. And I came to a similar topic. Anytime that I see someone with a similar uh, investigation area to my PhD, I'm so delighted and so happy now. But it was perhaps like a concern when you're doing your PhD and you're just like, oh my God, I've already been doing this for so long. I hope I don't have to change my research direction completely. I'm glad that you both came together and that you're sharing things in this emotional labor area. I just want to focus a bit now on maybe the distinctions between Anthony and James's research. So James, can you tell the listeners just what your research is focusing on mainly? Sure. So I, I guess there was um, there was four sort of arms um, or aims, overarching aims. I mean, the, the, the main aim was looking at how do we help psychologists potentially reduce um, the amount of emotional labor they're experiencing or how do we affect the relationship between emotional labor and, burn, and burnout in psychologists. And so the first two chapters were really focused on um, more qualitative studies to try to just simply because there was a lack of uh, research in the area to kind of look at, you know, what is it that are the, the kinds of effects, you know, of, of, of what do people perceive to be the effects of emotional labor? And then what are some ideas on how people um, or how psychologists might manage their own um, emotional labor to sort of map that out a little bit. Um, and then from particularly that second study, we kind of identified a few constructs that potentially could be useful. And then we tried to turn that into a statistical model um, to test that quantitatively and specifically looking at uh, psychological flexibility, self-compassion and career experience and whether you know, there was any potential for these things to be useful in, in helping psychologists be able to manage emotional labor more effectively. So those two chapters are still unpublished at the moment, um, still just, just finishing them off. Um, but uh, from that, we've certainly gathered, gathered evidence that self-compassion in particular seemed to be quite useful in reducing the overall load um, or, or volume of emotional labor. And that effect was really amplified to a great degree when that was combined with psychological flexibility. So if somebody is both psychologically flexible and self-compassionate, that seemed to almost supercharge the effect on, on reducing emotional dissonance or emotional labor. Yeah. Okay. That's so interesting. Anthony, can you speak to that and just say whether your research overlaps or whether it's looked at these constructs similarly of self-compassion or whether it ties into that in any way? Yeah, absolutely. So we're not looking at self-compassion as a variable, although, as James has said, it's it's really important to consider and something I would like to include in future research. My research has really sought out to answer three questions. So the first of these is, well, what is emotional labor? You know, we regulate our emotions in pretty much most interactions and most situations that we find ourselves in. But what is this unique aspect about regulating at work? What makes it different? What makes it so important? The second area that we're interested in looking at is what is the impact on psychologists, so the person enacting the emotional labor. And the third branch of our research is looking at what is the impact on clients. So again, we're looking to answer the broader question of how does emotional labor influence the therapeutic dynamic? And so looking at the individual strategies, again, James mentioned before that emotional dissonance, we're looking at how strategies might theoretically linked to dissonance, although we're not measuring it in particular. Okay, interesting. So let's just get out a few quick definitions then and remind the listeners, what is emotional labor? So your research is supposed to work out what it is. Have, have you got like a, a brief idea of what it is? Either of you can answer. Yeah, so emotional labor, as we're looking at it in my research, and I'm pretty sure this is the same in James's um, papers as well, is regulating emotions in the workplace context specifically in response to display rules. So those display rules are either perceived or explicit ideas of what types of emotions can be expressed and how they should be expressed um, to make it appropriate for your work role. So like a perceived rule might be you don't cry in sessions with clients. Absolutely. Or another rule might be you don't overtly express your frustration ah. if your client doesn't do their homework one session. Yeah. So emotional labor is how we manage our emotions in session according to what we perceive other rules which we can display them. Is that it? 
Absolutely. And probably needs a definition than hope providers. No, I was just like, oh, I hope I've got it right. (laughs) The other thing I think is interesting as well, and it hasn't been really what I've been able to, or I think Anthony's been able to focus on just because I guess, you know, the fact that we've got to have quite a narrow focus of the research topic. And if you start looking at emotional labor in other contexts, it sort of, you know, can be, you know, starts to become unwieldy, you know, in terms of being able to measure it. But I think where things could go next is also looking at the emotional labor in those other contexts as well that you might be in as a psychologist. So supervision, for example, Oh, you know, if you're a supervisee or you're a supervisor, um, you know, experiencing emotional labor in that context, or even the difference between say individual sessions versus family sessions versus couple sessions, like, uh, you know, whether it's different between um, working with adults and children and, and all that sort of stuff. Like, for example, from my own experience, when I was working in private practice a while ago, working with younger clients, um, I found that, you know, you, you had to be, well, I had to be a bit more energetic and a bit more outgoing and that sort of thing to be able to engage the kids in, in doing, you know, therapy work. But that's not actually really my natural personality. You know, I think I'm a bit more kind of, you know, reserved and a bit more relaxed. So I found that uniquely challenging. Whereas somebody who maybe just has the, that personal predisposition to being a bit more extroverted and, you know, having a lot more positive affect might have experienced less emotional labor in that context as well. That's so interesting. I was going to ask about personality, particularly in supervision. I find I use a lot of emotional labor in supervision, actually. That would be so interesting to look at because I reckon it's a unique context. Funnily enough, as I was listening to you saying that, so I have a very bubbly personality. I have a lot of positive affect. I hate working with kids. Um, I find it <laughs> I find it really hard to manage their chaotic energy alongside my chaotic energy. <laughs> I, didn't, I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> um, like it is easy engaging them, but I feel like I amp them up too much and then like right. I, I need to have that more like reassuring calm state and I like can't do that as easily but it's such yeah. an interesting research area I'd love to see if people find that different and that's such a great example of I guess that real nuanced experience of emotional labor as yeah. well because that's your personality trait and you're already engaging in emotional labor as soon as you walk in the room because you're counteracting maybe what feels natural to you exactly yeah Anthony and James, could you just tell us what the facets of emotional labour are, so what you've picked out as comprising emotional labour? I should note this is a really booming area of the research at the moment, but at least what I've chosen to focus on are the two primary strategies. So we have surface acting, which is basically just changing your observable expression without needing to change the underlying emotion, and deep acting, which is where we do some kind of cognitive work or other work to change the felt emotion in the hopes that our um, expression will change more authentically. There's also this this third domain or this this third strategy that I'm looking at, which is natural expression, which is really when there's no dissonance. What you feel is what you express, and there's no need or perceived need to regulate in that instance. So is that different to the deep acting, this natural expression, or are they the same thing? So they are different strategies. They might look the same on the surface, But whereas with deep acting, you're kind of conjuring up this this new emotion that's different to what you originally felt, with natural expression, there's no work involved. What you experience and what you feel, you're just putting out there. Do you think psychologists could ever achieve natural expression? Because I feel like everything we do in a session, I am thinking about how this might be perceived by the client or how I can use this to move into an area that might be being avoided by them or needs to be unpacked. Do you think actually natural expression is possible either for both of you? So, I mean, because I'm I'm thinking back on my own experience and I think there are times where I am naturally acting, but I'm still naturally acting within the role of psych. So am I deep acting to get myself into that role? You know what I mean? Like Mm. maybe it's about how well integrated that role that you're playing is in within the broad, your broader sense of self, if that yeah. kind of makes sense, you know? Yeah, so that makes you, sense. Yeah, if it feels like it's, you know, if it's something that's different or you're still not that comfortable sitting within that role, there's something that sort of stops you from sitting in that, maybe that, that makes it harder to naturally express. But if that becomes quite just a, an easy transition and you can balance that in amongst all the other roles in your life or other identities, maybe there's there's more capacity for, for natural expression. I'm simply just kind of speculating here though. Yeah, and just to build off what James is saying, in one of my studies, we actually collected 
data on the frequency of um, surface acting, deep acting, and natural expression. And the pattern of means, so to clarify, there were no statistical analyses done to see whether they were meaningfully different. But we do know that psychologists in our sample actually reported engaging in natural expression more than surface and deep acting. Oh, interesting. And so I guess that raises questions on perhaps the amount that we're modulating our emotions. So remember, surface and deep acting might be used just to change the intensity of a, of a felt emotion rather than to change the emotion completely. So certainly something to think about and not something I think I have answers on just yet, but a really interesting point of how authentic are we and how authentic can we be in a session? Do you think it's to do with experience as well? Like with what James was saying about being comfortable with the role, could it be that more experienced psychologists might feel more comfortable and have more natural expression? Have you looked at that? That was something that came out of the themes of of my second paper was that people were talking about career experience as something that helped them in their manage emotional labor. Now, I didn't find evidence that that, when we translated that into the statistical structural equation modeling, there wasn't really a significant interaction there. But I actually think that how we quantified experience, that might have had had an impact. But at least from what people were reporting was that with more career experience, it, it enabled them to be more willing to confront things that they might have avoided in the past. So, you know, experiences where that would have resulted in emotional dissonance and perhaps in the past where people might have been afraid to mention it or, or maybe not known how to or had the skills to be able to kind of use that emotion in, in a functional way. Over time, people are developing the capacity to do that. So when it happens again in the future, they're more able to do that. The other thing as well is, is the amount of resources available that people had um, or described having available to pay attention to the emotional experience. Whereas if you're earlier on in your careers and you're you know, very much focused on just you know, what therapy is and, and trying to, you know, in your mind, you're very occupied with the therapeutic process and the models and, and all those kind of things. Um, there's a lot less mental energy and attention, psychological resources available to look at your own emotion, emotional experience. Whereas over time, when that sort of stuff becomes quite second nature or becomes well integrated into one's identity, maybe, then there's more resources available to really focus on that. And people feel like they can focus on it and maybe they've also got the skills to be able to use it effectively as well over time. I wish there was anything I could say around how to encourage that to, to, or how to you know, speed up that process. But the only thing that really came out from what I've looked at so far is that it was, it was simply exposure in a way. It was, it was being exposed to the situations and um, just over time becoming much more familiar with the process of therapy. That's so interesting. And the thing that was running through my head there was Anthony's study where he's looked at, he surveyed a few hundred psychologists. Is that right, Anthony? And you're looking at the relationship between emotional labor and well-being. And I was just thinking and reflecting what James was saying. And I was like, wow, it'd be even worse for psychs who are unpaid because that was a big fa- um, that was a big result in your research, Anthony, that there was this moderating relationship for psychs who are unpaid in their role. If they're doing more surface acting, they have poorer well-being compared to psychs who are salaried. That's right. So I should note that oftentimes, and something I'm trying to, to disentangle is that relationship between payment and experience. Yeah. Because most, but not all of our unpaid psychologists were also placement students. Yeah. Um, so we couldn't we couldn't have both factors in our model for statistical reasons. Yeah. Um, but what we found is that certainly there was a stronger relationship between um, surface acting and burnout for those psychs who were unpaid. Yeah, I'm just trying to put myself in their shoes and I could imagine me as an early psych. Fortunately, I was never unpaid in any of my roles, but if I were unpaid, I'd be like oh my gosh, I'm doing so much work here. I'm having to control my emotions so hard and I'm not even getting paid for it. This sucks. And I'd feel pretty uh, salty about that. I think that's a really interesting consideration and probably a reflection point for me and, and for people involved in kind of developing these training programs to think, well, how can we better support people? One of the things that I'm really interested in, and and we touch on this in one of my papers, although I know the data um, isn't available, the paper's still under review, is the idea that perhaps placements and, and those unpaid placements offer a different type of compensation. 
So although the emotional labor literature has really focused in on the idea of financial compensation, we raise questions in that paper of whether compensation can take other forms. So for example, progress toward accreditation and whether that's sufficient compensation to generate that effort or that engagement in surface acting, um, which in the literature has been put forward as justified by the financial compensation. And there's also, I think, more broadly um, in the broader emotional labor literature, there is at least one or two papers that did look at how financial rewards tends to lessen the impact of surface acting um, to burnout. So I can't remember what occupational context that was, um, but so it seems to be a bit of a trend there that at least in the idea that rewards and what we construct as rewards, because I mean, obviously financial is, is the easy one to kind of think of, but I guess as maybe there's other rewards that are, are sort of linked more towards our motives that can certainly have an impact on this emotional labor process as well. The other thing to that is um, the financial insecurity. Say if you're working you know, early in your career, you're maybe not getting paid a whole lot. And the, if you're f feeling a sense of financial insecurity and you're trying to engage clients and some clients engage, some clients don't, what have you, you know, what does that do in your own sort of stress levels and your anxiety that you're bringing into the room, bringing into that therapy, therapy room? Um, because really we want to be that, that sort of that, you know, that calm container uh, for clients, but that can be really challenging to do if we've got our own personal life stresses that are like financial worries that are um, you know, impacting on that. Hmm, that's such an interesting area. I hope you can, one of you can do a study on that. <laughs> I don't have any funds to give you. I don't know where you're going to get them from, but just go for it, please. <laughs> certainly, yeah, I certainly hope that this, this area continues and I'm able to con continue to research in it as well. Yeah. <laughs> joint grant, joint grant. Now that we've defined the aspects of emotional labor, I'm curious if we can apply them to your own situations in your workplace, perhaps how you've noticed surface acting and deep acting in your role and what you've learned over time. I know that's a big area and let us know how you notice surface acting or deep acting or even the natural expression show up in your work. Uh, so I work in the AOD field um, and, and we work with young, young adults and adolescents through young adulthood can be quite a challenging demographic, you know, at times. And so I think that the things that stand out to me that create the most emotional dissonance are when you're working with somebody in this quite challenging behaviors, you know, in the room, whether that's towards me or whether that's, you know, in their relationships um, or, or what have you. So at those times, I do often find myself engaging in, in a bit of a deep acting process. The way that I like to do it, I don't think it's the only way to do it, but the way I like to do it is through uh, formulating what I'm seeing in, in a kind of like a schema mode model. Um, if there is, you know, something that's basically trying to connect to the vulnerable child that's sitting underneath the coping mode sort of behaviors. Um, so I find that particularly quite useful or even something as simple as recognizing, Hey, this, this behavior that I'm seeing is coming from somebody with an adolescent brain, you know, and an adolescent brain is not an adult brain <laughs> and it's not okay to, to kind of put the same sort of level of um, expectation on them as a result of that. And then, so little things like that help me sort of, I guess, soothe that maybe the frustration that I might experience at times or be able to have that, that more compassionate kind of perspective. So instead of being like, oh, why are they being so frustrating? You can look at yeah. them and say, okay, they've got a pr protective part of themselves that wants to keep me out because that vulnerable part is really scared and afraid. Yeah, and of course it is given that person's history and maybe the trauma background they've ex they've experienced or, or what have you. You know, you can certainly that that behaviour that you're seeing makes total sense. Um, and has ha so I guess it's you know in other language it's it's looking at the function of the behaviour and the learning history behind the function. Um, the other thing that I find personally quite useful is um, I find the acceptance commitment therapy concepts you know of diffusion and sitting with a welcoming emotion that sort of stuff i find quite useful too so let's say um in the context of say doing risk assessments um and maybe there's some anxiety that might get elicited through that just sort of sitting with that anxiety allowing it to be there without sort of you know um responding too strongly to it 
I love that because I think with display rules, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I feel like with display rules, sometimes as an early career psych, we can push it to their extreme. So it's like, not only should I not be displaying this emotion, but I shouldn't even be feeling it. I shouldn't be feeling frustration towards the client. I should like every client. I shouldn't be thinking that I don't like this client. But what I'm hearing from you, James, is like, no, acknowledge those emotions and let them in. So I think, and I think there's the, you know, I shouldn't be feeling it. And then there's the other step of because I'm feeling it, it makes me X, Y, and Z. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. So then it can, it starts to become about, you know, I'm not a good therapist or, you know, whatever, or the other way of dealing with it as well that I've seen people do is that that thing gets projected onto the client in really unhelpful ways as well. So it's no, the client is resistant. No, the client is, they're not being a good enough client. (laughs) You know, they're not motivated enough. You know, so in a way, we we can become um, rejecting of the client, or we can be stigmatizing of the client. You know, as a as a projection of maybe our own uh, uh, self criticisms. I find that so important because it really does speak to the far-reaching implications of handling emotional labor poorly. It's like we're trying our best to regulate our emotions in therapy, but sometimes if we project that out onto the client, we might actually not be delivering them the best care that we could. And I know that this is something that you spoke about in your research, Anthony. There's a really strong link in the literature between that experience of burnout, which we know is related to emotional labor, um, and impacts on client care through the pathway of compassion fatigue. I guess in, in what I'm really passionate about and trying to figure out through my research is, well, we're starting to develop this, this broad understanding. And I say broad because, you know, there's certainly nuances involved that we're yet to, to explore. But this broad understanding of the impact of the emotional labor strategies on psychologists. But as we've discussed especially in therapy, there is a therapeutic dynamic and there's a lot of process happening. We're wondering then, well, what is the impact on the person receiving this? If we're prioritizing our own well-being and our own, I guess, preservation through emotional labor and through these strategies, well, how can we also ensure that for the recipient of this emotional labor, that it's equally effective and equally helpful? I hate burnout in itself because it affects clinicians, but it's like if we've got vulnerable people coming to see their clinician and half of them are burnt out, like I imagine there must be some detriment to the care that they're receiving. A huge amount. And unfortunately, the, a lot of the uh, the meta-analyses looking at the rates of burnout in psychs, um, this pre-COVID, it was somewhere, the, the, they usually landed somewhere around 40 to 60% of people were experiencing significant uh, degree, a significant degree of the emotional exhaustion component to burnout. What that means is that if you're going to see a psychologist at that point in time, you had a one in two chance you know, of working with somebody who was already emotionally exhausted. In the sample that I collected from my quantitative studies, that was as high as uh, what was it? It was a, it was up to ninety percent of the sample, and this was sort of during COVID were experiencing at least moderate levels of emotional exhaustion. And it was somewhere, I can't remember off my head now, actually, I wish I could get it, the, the actual statistic, but it was something around about 40 to 50% of people were in the high range as well. That's nice. So, yeah, it's, it's a really, really concerning issue in, across our industry. And I think I don't, also don't want to, you know, say that emotional labor is the only factor here, because I think that where the burnout literature is sort of starting to go now is looking at the organizational factors that are, and there's a dual responsibility here that, you know, between yes, we have, there are stuff, there are personal factors that certainly contribute to burnout and we have the responsibility to manage that, but there are also significant organizational and systemic and cultural factors too. Um, and if we focus too much on the individual in that context, then we absolve the organization of responsibility mm. um, for providing psychologically healthy workplaces. So I'm talking there about the rates of burnout um, and and it being a concern, but it's a concern looking at it holistically as well, organizational as well as individual. Just to expand on what James is saying there, we, in my research, actually are using a different measure of, of burnout that specifically looks at burnout in health practitioners and, and health service workers. And comparing to, to the reference sample, the psychologists in our study reported personal and work-related burnout that was actually comparable to the highest um, reported across industries as well. So for context, this reference sample was made up of nurses, social workers, midwives, 
you know, chief doctors, supervisors, a whole range of different healthcare sectors. And what we found is that for personal and work-related burnout, psychologists would actually be pretty similar to um, the highest rated professions and certainly higher than average if we average across professions. For client-related burnout, which is that burnout specifically related to interactions with one's client, psychologists didn't stand out that much, so they weren't significantly different from average. Um, but certainly personal and work-related burnout, um, psychologists were standout professions. So does that mean that if you ask a psychologist what stresses you out the most about your work, they're not going to really be like, oh, you know, the clients can can stress me out a bit. It's hard to do that. But they're more likely to say like the organization and the and the and the admin around clients is worse for them. Is that hard to interpret that? Well, I, th- I think probably a, a more accurate way of interpreting that would be that the um, the impacts of their burnout are more pronounced in personal and work-related domains and not so impacted by their clients. Ah. So, for example, in this measure, um, you know, client-related burnout might be assessed by looking at how hard psychs find it to work with clients or um, how frustrating they find their work with clients to be, um, whereas personal burnout would be the impacts on them. So how often do you feel physically or emotionally exhausted? And work-related burnout would be, well, how hiring is every working hour for you how much does your work overall frustrate you and so we're finding that when people respond to those measures that they say that work is tiring work is tiring and it's having pretty big personal impacts on them and that's comparable to a reference sample made up of like nurses like chief doctors absolutely so across you know looking at personal and work related burnout the highest scores there were midwives in the reference sample and using the um, the author's formula for statistical significance, um, psychologists were not significantly different to midwives. Wow. But like when you ask people, they'd be like, oh, midwives do so much. And I spoke about this with James last time, but psychologists just talk. <laughs> Absolutely. And, yeah. So there's such a different perception, but it's like when I hear that, it really it really hits home like the amount of emotional labor and work that psychologists do do. And when you, I mean, like, I don't know how, I don't have to say it to listeners, but we work really hard. And on top of that, I guess some of the, the, maybe the internalized ideas that we have around how we should be like, I, I listened from into the, the podcast around receiving therapy, Yeah, you know, and that theme of feeling like I, I should be able to handle it or I should be able to just do this or that even maybe being, you know, reinforced or felt like it's been reinforced from other professions. Like, you know, you guys shouldn't be burnt out because you know, you're psyched. So, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, can I ask a quick question of Anthony? Is yeah, that okay? please do. One thing I'm curious, Anthony, is in your in the study that you're looking at uh, tracking emotional labor and the impact on the therapy itself and clients, what outcomes are you tracking? So we're specifically looking at therapeutic alliance and we're looking at treatment satisfaction. We do have a um, one item in our in our study looking at kind of perceived authenticity of the therapist. Mm. Um, and so we'll see how that that unfolds. So those are primary areas of interest. I'm super keen to see how that goes. Yeah, when it comes out, Anthony, come back on the podcast. I'd be so interested in hearing that. Absolutely. And then maybe I'll, I'll join James in getting a badge as a, as a friend of the <laughs> yeah, podcast. Yeah, you could be a friend of the podcast. You get <laughs> awesome. uh, promotion. Yeah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Done. Um, Anthony, I wanted to hear from you. We've heard from James about how surface and deep acting shows up in his work. I just wanted to hear from your experience because I understand that you work with families, carers, and I'm just curious, your research has looked at individual therapists who deliver individual therapy, but I just wondered if you find it different in your own work. Yeah, so I work at this stage primarily with children and young people. So I would say probably 80 to 90% of my client base is between the ages of 6 and 16. So quite different to what James was describing. Um, In terms of surface and deep acting, rather than the types of clients I work with, I actually have noticed a bit of a change over the course of my career. And this is possibly a, an artifact of studying emotional labor as part of my PhD, but I felt, you know, in, in reflecting on my experience before this episode that I used to do a lot more surface acting as an early career psych than I might do now. Obviously, working with families, there's a lot of dynamics in the room. 
right? You've, there's a lot of different people that you're trying to please. And it's very rare, not only in working with families, but in any interaction that we're going to get everyone on the same page. And so if I think of the emotions that come up for me, right, that kind of stress, maybe frustration that comes along with that. I think early in my career, I might've just stifled that by, by kind of smiling and, and pretending that everything was going okay. Whereas now I sit there and I think, you know, there's actually a lot of dynamics at play here. These parents want the best for their children. These parents are bringing their children to therapy, which is an awesome, awesome thing that they're doing. And these are kids who would probably rather be anywhere else than sitting in a therapy room. So understanding that the dynamics are not necessarily a product of therapy, but are just a natural human kind of friction that can occur and putting it into perspective that way is my method of deep acting is really thinking about, well, what is this like from the client's perspective or from each party's perspective who's in the room? That's really interesting. It actually, for me, mirrors what James was saying earlier. It reminds me of that distancing or contextualizing the behavior that you're seeing. Does that sound similar to you as well, James? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess because I've got a little bit of a, the, the self-compassion kind of stuff in my head as well, I'm thinking about that common humanity factor as well. Mm. And um, I, I would certainly relate a lot to what you've said there, Anthony, around um, maybe there being more surface acting earlier on in my career and, and that happening less so. And I was just sort of thinking, as you were saying, <clears throat> as you were talking, I was thinking about what helped shift that for me. And I think over time, I think there's like maybe a, I think the anxiety around not being good enough it reduces. Um, yeah, I think over time you have that experience of um, being able to reflect that things are going to be okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can sit through challenging experiences and emerge on the other side of it. Um, and also I think on that point as well, I think it's it's good to get a breadth of experience with clients and being able to work with clients over a longer period of time helps you weather those little storms that come up along the way. Like for example, because in my context, you know, a substance use journey is often a long one. You know, there are certainly ups and downs within that. And being able to have the experience of getting people to where they need to get to over a long period of time means that when somebody is maybe having a lapse or maybe struggling or something difficult is coming up, there's a, there's a background of experience knowing that if we just get through this and we, we keep maintaining this connection, building this rapport and working on these issues over time, more than likely we wouldn't get to a good outcome. Whereas I think previously in the early days, if you don't have that, it's easier to get caught up in the moment and easier to get caught up in the sense of, oh, my client isn't progressing or my client's relapsed or, you know, their mental health is, is taking a real, a real dive. I think it's easier to be more drawn into that um, and, and very worried and all the other complex reactions that we might have to something like that. Do you share that as well, Anthony, about how you were in your earlier career compared to now? Is there some of that change there for you? Absolutely. I think we, you know, we developed this kind of therapeutic repertoire, for lack of a better word, where we've seen these patterns before. We've seen this dynamic before. We've had the same successes and failures as a therapist before. And so we can start to notice these patterns, fall back on these patterns. And as James said, know that actually things will get better. We can cope with, with setbacks and knowing our role in terms of a client's care. So what, what piece of the pie is our responsibility? Whereas perhaps earlier in your career, there might have been an element of self-blame. Especially in that transition from studying where you develop these textbook perfect treatment plans um, where everything fits neatly in 10 sessions and um, homework is always done and everyone <laughs> always shows up on time. Um, and, you know, as therapists that we're always feeling on top of it. Um, to the real world where actually things aren't so neat. And so I think definitely a lot of self-blame, a lot of self-criticism earlier on. And I think that's really where self-compassion, as James was saying, but also good quality supervision and a huge amount of reflective practice is really important. Mm, so rather than being like, I've done something wrong here to cause this client not showing up, I've done something wrong to not have this treatment plan go to plan, with more experience, it sounds like you could recognize this is the course of therapy and that there are different factors outside of here doing it. I'm doing a good job as I can and being kind to yourself in that way. Absolutely. And I think a key example for that is, you know, working a lot with adolescents, 
I used to, I used to treat adolescents the same way as I did any other client, which is let's just jump straight into therapy. You know, let's just do our assessment, go into psychoeducation and, and tackle these concerns that you have. When in actual fact, working with someone who's 14 or 15, who, whose parents have kind of forced them to come to therapy or they they haven't been forced, but they're not really sure if they want to be there or not. You need to actually allocate time to rapport building. And so learning those lessons, learning what works and what doesn't, and having a bit of a, a track record in my mind to fall back on has decreased the, the pressure I put on myself and therefore the, the need to engage in that surface acting in the moment where I'm juggling all these emotions and trying to figure out how to how to make sense of them and how to cope in that in that moment. Yeah, because um, maybe a common experience, I'm sure everyone has experienced this with working with adolescents, but the adolescent who won't talk for the whole session um, and their parents have forced them to be there and they're pretty much just not talking at all. Um, I remember when I was first working with adolescents, I used to feel a huge sense of anxiety and I'd be like, what am I doing? I'm wasting this person's time. Like if I tell my supervisor, I haven't done anything, what are they going to say? And then over time, I used to just bring it into the room and be like, okay, we're sitting here. How's that going for us? Do you want to do this? Do you want to play a game with me? Alrighty, we'll just sit here. Do, do, do. Like, and it was so much better, way less anxiety, but it also helped to increase the rapport with the young person. I just wondered if either of you could speak to that. You've, it sounds like you've had way more experience with adolescents. Um, that's something that you get. Or the, the other version of that might be an adolescent that can't trust, you know, has, has issues trusting people. Yeah. You know, and maybe through their own upbringing and family of origin issues, doesn't really have a working template of being able to you know, see somebody and, and have that trust that they're going to hold their vulnerability in a That's respectful, such a lovely way looking way. at it. Yeah. You know, um, and so it takes, it takes a long time, I think, to build that up, you know, with adolescents, just people in general, I think. I think if we're talking about people with complex needs, yeah, that's certainly a common theme is so sometimes it's like, okay, what's the silence about? You know, mm. is this silence about the fact that the parents have dropped them off and they're viewed as the problem? that just needs to be fixed, you know, through me, um, or is it something else, you know, is, is it about a difficulty trusting, you know, you as a therapist, you know, w what's actually happening here in the room. And I guess that's, that's all maybe the, the processing that we might do, but then the, the actual, you know, on the ground thing, I think it's always coming back to the idea of starting where the clients at, you know, talking about hobbies, talking about in hobbies and interests, you know, um, the, those act conversation cards, you know, can, can be really helpful too just meeting the client where they're at and then over time sort of tracking, I, you know, I want to be doing the therapy side of things, you know, and I guess you could argue that rapport building and, and that um, building that positive therapeutic relationship, you know, is therapy stuff. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it is. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there might be some people that think that, no, that's just this extra common factor stuff. And actually the, the real work is the exercises and activities and things, but for them, you know, you can, you can kind of track maybe about, oh, how much are you able to do that over time? You know, you might start with it's all just rapport and then maybe it's rapport in maybe maybe 10 minutes of therapy stuff, like, you know, the, the active, I'm doing air quotes, you know, therapy stuff. Yeah. Um, and then back to rapport building. And then over time, maybe that the, the dynamic of the session starts to shift a bit. I think that's where it's interesting to kind of pause and kind of reflect on then where are we at systemically? Because, you know, under Medicare with the recent cuts down to 10 sessions, that certainly makes it, you know, that increases the pressure that we might feel to, to get to outcomes immediately. But, uh, you know, I think if you're going in with that pressure to somebody that is really finding it difficult to sit in that room and sit in that space, then it's just going to make it harder, I think. And just echoing what James has said, I guess being able to tolerate and manage that that balance between wanting to, again, with air quotes, get into the therapy stuff and foster the rapport so that the client is willing to stay in therapy. Um, and so you can kind of balance that out and achieve those long-term, those long-term gains. And, you know, working with adolescents, I've almost made it within reason part of my standard part of the assessment process where I find out their hobbies, find out their interests and, and let the parents know that probably the first session or two is going to be mostly interest focused. So I'm, I'm really fortunate in that one of the clinics that I work at, I spend probably 50% of my session outdoors with the adolescents that I work with. So I have, you know, a few clients who are teaching me how to play soccer, a few clients who are teaching me how to play baseball, one who's teaching me some advanced tricks and handball. And 
it's not just us sitting there and, you know, the parents have observed, it's not us just sitting playing games for half an hour, but actually creating that context where clients are really just happy to talk and it's not the primary focus. You're not having a 14, 15 year old sitting in a chair in an all white room trying to just talk about feelings. But I think just going back to the emotional labor side of it, as an early career psych, I think I might've felt more pressure to give clients more bang for their buck. But now later on in my career, I don't really have those emotions or those feelings that were associated with that, you know, rule that I'd created for myself because I've started to draw on that repertoire of, well, actually this has worked in the past. Clients are going to get more out of therapy and talk more if we're not sitting in that room in a high pressure context. That's so lovely. I love that your clients are teaching you things and it really sounds like you are fostering that therapeutic alliance and relationship and helping them to feel safe and seen and understood, um, which is beautiful. But if we had listened to perhaps those rules that we have set or that we have internalized, which are like, no, you must sit in front of the client and you must continue to talk and then try and work it out. Perhaps you wouldn't have gotten the great outcomes that you're seeing now. I think so. Absolutely. And and I think the track record of client adherence to treatment and and client the number of sessions that clients will return for um, is reflected in that so I don't have actual data on that but my anecdotal data suggests that there certainly is a difference in the client experience and in my own experience as a psychologist yeah like just in terms of emotional labor how do you find that is it less um is there less deep act no there's less is there less surface acting for you there you go yeah I yeah. think probably if I had to complete this measure and obviously it does, you know, it, it's a bit of a estate thing. So I think it would depend on the session and the client, but I would say I, I actually do probably a good amount of natural expression in those moments. Cause I'm also not trying to put on a facade of having everything all perfectly organized. You know, if you're playing soccer and you're kicking a ball, my mind is on the client and that dynamic, but it's not so focused on being the perfect therapist. And I think that idea of the, being a perfect therapist is, is drummed into us throughout our training and, and by the reinforcement we get in the career. Yeah, and, and I think something that was really significant for me was re- reflecting on there was that classic meta-analysis that was looking at um, contributors to outcomes um, you know, in therapy. I think it's Lambert and Bali. That I sounds think. right. Yeah, um, and just you know, th- that famous little pie chart around, okay, what – what percentage, you know, of different aspects contribute to client outcome, the the biggest portion of the pie being client related factors, you know, things that you just have absolutely no control over things like, does the client experience a relationship breakdown suddenly in therapy or something like that. But then the second biggest predictor being the relationship and those common factors across all modes of therapy. And then the actual technique or the therapy that you're doing, maybe being about 15% of the outcome. Now, that doesn't mean that you ignore that 15% because it's obviously a, a really important part of it, but shouldn't come at the expense of the, the much larger 30% of, of the, the common factors in therapy. And I think because you know the we, we focus a lot on the technique stuff, and I think we have to. Um, so I'm not saying not to do that, but I think that, we also have to acknowledge how much that is going to contribute to the outcome. And also we need to be focusing on on those common factors. And I think linking that to emotional labor, I think if we have these rules that, you know, it's just the the 15% of the technique that's going to make all the difference in the client, um, then we're taking on so much responsibility for what happens. And we're taking responsibility for stuff that we actually can't control ultimately and yeah and and refocusing instead on actually connecting with the client and and doing that technique within the context of a a positive therapeutic relationship is going to be um, much easier for us to sit with you know without having those self-criticisms that we might take. So are you saying James that if psychs want to do less surface acting and have more naturally expressed emotions they can focus on their relationship with the client and that can assist them? I guess I'm thinking uh, I'm, I'm also am referring that I think it can help take away a, a huge portion of anxiety that we might yeah. hold in the room around responsibility for therapeutic change mm. um, that we can maybe put down that anxiety that we're holding. And then because if we're, we are holding that anxiety, that's a higher rate of emotional labor that we're going to have to be engaging with, you know, in with the client in the session. So it's about sort of removing that you know, that, that weight on our shoulders. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really, if we think of the detection of those 
um, display rules as as what prompts emotional labor or the the engagement in emotional labor, then what James is saying really follows, which is if we remove some of those display rules or we make some of those display rules more balanced, um, then perhaps we might feel less need to engage in emotional labor. Again, this is stuff that I'm just drawing on from my own experience um, and reflection on this topic, not something that has been studied. Um, but you know, I think Anthony's work is kind of going somewhere towards um, you know, measuring that and studying that. Um, is there a question and measure just of display rules? I think I saw in your re- research study, Anthony, that you had like a four item questionnaire or something. Yeah, so there is a measure of display rules and and certainly in the paper that's under review at the moment, we we do present the data on what kind of display rules um, psychologists experience, experience and report. So the measure really looks at what are the positive display rules, so the need to express positive emotions yeah. and um, a measure of negative display rules, which is how much we need to kind of suppress those negative emotions. Mm. Um and looking at the relationship between that and the engagement in emotional labor strategies. Oh, that's so cool. Cause I reckon just like anecdotally in my own personal experience, I reckon I've loosened up my display rules considerably and allow myself to be more authentic because sometimes being a person who has a lot of positive energy and a strength of mine is having zest for life. If you look at it as a strengths questionnaires and stuff like that. Um, sometimes I've had to regulate my emotions for clients who are say experiencing grief and it's not a it's not appropriate for me to to be the way that I usually am. But even then, I find that I can still have some authenticity in those really heavy conversations and I don't have to use as much emotional labor, but that's only been over time. Yeah, it's about developing those skills over time to be able to use the emotion effectively. Exactly. Um, because, you know, those with that emotional dissonance, it does have the potential to be damaging to the relationship if it's not handled appropriately. So finding the skills over time that you can negotiate that process um, and, and also making sure that it's in the service of, of the therapy in the service of the client's needs. Exactly. Yeah. I think we've talked for a while now, so I just want to kind of wrap up our conversation. So I wanted to ask each of you with emotional labor, given that you're both clinicians and you're both researchers, if you had any advice to give to a younger version of yourselves about how to manage emotional labor, what do you think you would say to younger Anthony and younger James? Yeah, big question. I think it would be just to relax a little bit. And we know that telling someone who's anxious and someone who's stressed <laughs> to relax is not going to help. <laughs> just calm down. Um, <laughs> absolutely. But, but more so just to relax some of those display rules, right? It's okay if you engage in a bit of self-disclosure by accident or, or intentionally. And, and it's okay if, you know, you, you kind of veer off track and, and you don't do something exactly according to your treatment plan. Um, but also just to, to reflect a bit more. So I know that a lot of work in my early career was done in supervision, but also spending some time outside of that, really focusing on, well, what's happening internally What are some of those physiological experiences I'm having that tell me that I'm doing something ineffective or, or what are some of those internal cues that I can, I can pay more attention to, but yeah, just, just to, to take it as it comes and just relax a little bit, just a little bit. Thank you, Anthony. James. Yeah. um, So I I spoke last time about that idea of not being perfect and being okay with not being perfect. I remember that. I really liked that. Yeah, so that was kind of key for me as well. But also, I guess, uh, riding the wave of emotion, you know, that act concept of, of um, having the skills to be able to sit with it and sort of just go where it takes you, you know, and, and, and I guess having the openness to that. And I think also maybe taking time to think about how my life is outside of the room as well and how that might be contributing to my capacity to have, you know, more of a sense of being able to manage the emotional labor or how that might be detrimental to that as well and taking steps to address that whether that's therapy supervision or or whatever whatever is needed thank you for raising that last point about your life outside the room as well I recently finished reading a book it's called burnout by Amelia and Emily Nagoski have you guys heard of it I haven't read it, no. Yeah, you might not. It's like a feminist uh, burnout book. So it's a burnout book specifically for for women. Sounds Um, interesting. 
It is really interesting. But one of the things they talk about is that sometimes you can't control the stressors in your life. So the external things that are impacting you, but you can control how you complete the stress cycle. And that's how they call it. Mm. And so sometimes we try to craft our workplace so much to reduce our stress, but we neglect the things outside the therapy room that are impacting our stress levels as well. So I think that's a really important point. And thank you, James, for raising it. Yeah, and absolutely. And obviously, that's going to be different for for women in our society than, than men. Yeah. Well, thank you both for coming on. I very much appreciate your expertise and insights. And it was really lovely um, to have you. Thank you very much. It's lovely being back. Yeah, thanks for having us. I think it's a it's been a fun experience and hopefully we'll we'll recruit a few more people interested in emotional labor um, through the podcast. I think so. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Anyone out there, if you want to do emotional labor research, please contact Anthony or me. Oh, yes. Yeah. And how can they find you if listeners do want to get in contact with you? How might they find you? Uh, so you can get me um, on LinkedIn. I think you just probably just search my name and uh, you can get me on my email. So james.j.clark with an E at postgrad.curtain.edu.au. Um, and I'm also on Twitter as well under JJ Clark with an E psych. Great. Thank you, Anthony. Yeah. So um, same three platforms, um, LinkedIn, you can just search Anthony Joffe, um, Twitter at Anthony Joffe. So there is a sneaky H in there. So it's more like Anthony um, and email. So anthony.joffe at hdr.mq.edu.au. Great. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks, Bronwyn. Thank you very much. And thank you for your interest in the topic. No worries. My pleasure. And thank you listeners for listening. Have a good one and catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. My mission is to unpack the challenges faced by early career psychologists so they don't have to go through them alone. I need your help to get these episodes out there and there's a bunch of really cool free things you can do to help me. Most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. That way you get the show as soon as I put it out. Also, consider telling a friend and I would be so honoured if you'd share some of our episodes on social media. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.